The following transmission contains unencrypted instances of explicit language. Mature audiences are cleared to proceed. You're late. Yeah, that's what my mother said. Sergeant David Mohajer, born in 1985. Six foot two, 250 pounds, brown hair, brown eyes, training in Japanese martial arts and online marketing. You want to look at my ass, too? You're working for me, Dave. I'm working for this podcast. Well, in this office, I am the podcast. They didn't tell me your name. Well, then how do you know you're in the right podcast? They said you were a serious son of a bitch that didn't have any sense of humor. Can't be two of you. Shall we begin? Seeker Society, the grab for Nazi and Jewish scientists immediately following the fall of Berlin, Guatemalan grasshoppers, South American coups, and the absolute debacle that was the Bay of Pigs. Robert De Niro takes his final stab at directing in an effort to bring all of this cool stuff to the screen in 2006. Does it work? Is it any good? I'm Todd. And I'm Dave, and we like to talk about spy movies. The Good Shepherd is a fantastic opportunity to tease apart the mysteries and myths of the Origins of the CIA, and we're excited as all hell to do that in this episode of Spies Like Us. Robert De Niro had worked on this for like a different, there's different accounts. Some people like to say like seven years, some people say like nine. Oh, wow, no, I didn't. Right. Well, it's actually a little more complicated than that. Uh, this script was written first in 1994 and was written with uh, Francis Ford Coppola in mind. Oh. At Columbia Pictures. Um, Coppola eventually dropped the project. He said he just couldn't relate to the characters. And then over the years... That's pretty funny. <laughs> right. <laughs> due, due to their lack of emotion. Yeah. <laughs> that's pretty funny. Which is interesting because that's a, that's a charge that uh, some people level against this film. Mm-hmm. Uh, I know we have our own thoughts on that. Right. <laughs> um, but, uh, you know, just years went by and, and just different management changes at Columbia just kept shifting things around, putting this thing back and back until eventually they had a studio head that said he didn't want to do any spy movie unless they could get someone like Tom Cruise to star in it. Oh, man, that would have been gross. Yeah, right. Tom Cruise is is uh, James Angle. No, no, I'm good. Right. <laughs> That's a hard pass, bro. <laughs> so clearly, clearly, the Mission Impossible movies must be out there and performing well at this time. Um, well, that would have been around. Oh no, no, no! The first one didn't come out till what the late '90s, right? Really? Let's check it real quick. Hey, Mora, what's the year on uh, Mission Impossible One? The first iteration of the Mission Impossible cinematic reboot starring Tom Cruise was released in May of 2006, an obvious grabs for the summer popcorn season. The Good Shepherd is released in early December of the same year, a season that studios usually reserve for a grab at Oscar attention. Yeah, so Mission Impossible, I guess, you know, I didn't write the exact years down here. Not all this happened in 1994, so, but like, like I said, for years, it just kind of sat around. Right, 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 right. Definitely right, right. long enough for Mission Impossible to have come out right. and to have kind of, uh, to a certain extent, like kind of changed people's perceptions of uh, what they're looking for out of a spy movie. Right. Or at least a, a spy movie that's going to deliver like huge summer numbers. <laughs> right, right. So John Frankenheimer eventually, like, signed on and said he'd make the film with MGM and he had just worked with Robert De Niro on Ronin. Awesome. Movie. Oh, that was a really good movie. Movie. For, sure, yeah. for sure. For sure. He wanted De Niro to star in it. De Niro said, nah, I'm not going to star, but I'll, I'll be in it. Right. And so that got, you know, some, some legs, uh, back up under it. So the thing is Robert De Niro had been working on his own CIA story for like seven years. He's really fascinated with the subject. So this script and him just kind of like intersected in this weird way. Uh-huh. This this kind of like abandoned child of a project. Right. <laughs> that, you know, and, and you know, just this Frankenheimer, uh, De Niro connection, you know, just kind of breathes enough like life into it to, to kind of say like, okay, well, 
we'll do this. And then uh, they start producing it, and Frankenheimer dies. <laughs> yeah. Oh, man. Uh-huh. <laughs> he never got to see it. That sucks. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So kind of, I guess, it this, this movie, in a way, it just kind of happened. This movie kind of just happened to Robert De Niro. You see what I'm saying? Yeah, it just kind of fell in his lap. It's it was almost close. like like it was planned or something. Like it was in the it was in the stars. Close enough to the kind of movie he had wanted to make, but not exactly. But here it is, and it just kind of you know like uh, you. It's all the other parents are dead. You're the sole survivor. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> taking care of this little baby. Yeah, you know, there's some thought too that's uh, 2006. So like you know, previously you know, studios they didn't really want to do a spy movie that's not like a super action movie. But what's going on in two, around 2006? Like uh, you know, 2004, five, six, when this movie actually does you know uh, actually get made is. There's kind of a like national discussion reexamination of the CIA going on in in the U.S. Uh-huh. Uh, in the I remember post nine eleven. Yep. Stuff we haven't gotten up to where we get like uh, real like reexaminations like Zero Dark Thirty uh-huh. and shit like that. But uh, it is you know there's I think I think that kind of has a little to do with it too of how the movie actually comes out is that uh, uh, oh hey. CIA is in the news. People are kind of talking about, let's say, that the character of the CIA is very much on. Well, I know they had to re look back because the signals were all there for 9 11, and uh, everybody uh, pretty much collectively felt there was a failure in intelligence. We're also like kind of re examining the, the CIA in terms of not just competence, but like, what are you guys actually doing in this war of terror? terror? Like, what's this? What's this Guantanamo Bay we keep hearing about? Right. Oh yeah, yeah. You know, I see that, what you mean. Yeah. that kind of stuff. So yeah. yeah. So and so you can see how like the audience, you know, studio exec would say, you know, a movie about the the character, the soul of the CIA, which this movie is kind of about, wouldn't you agree? Yes, absolutely. The, the heart audience. and soul. Yeah. Right. 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 We got to preface this one with a discussion about the historical accuracy. I don't want to go deep into it. Right. Because we got plenty of podcasts to do, like, on some of the details. Yeah. Um, Well, there's a lot of historical accuracy and a lot of historical inaccuracy. Uh, In fact, it's quite a bit of inaccuracy, but it's still kind of loosely got historical accuracy. The movie doesn't even purport to be a real story. It doesn't even say, like, based on a real story. No, it um, doesn't. But they've just got, like, a... I, I remember the ads, the ads when they came out, they tried to make it look like a documentary. Like, it, like they, they made it look all secretive and, like, this is going to be unclassified information. Whoever was in charge of, of marketing gets an A-plus from me. Major, major marketing points. <laughs> Yeah, well, that only works if the if like it not only gets people to the theater, but if the, they're not like disappointed with what they with what they get. Right, 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 right. Uh, that's that's part of it. Sometimes, you know, sometimes that kind of stuff can backfire. I think like a an example I always think of is uh, V for Vendetta was mm-hmm. marketed as a completely different movie than what it actually is. Oh, really. Well, I mean, I think the marketing did a good job of of their advertising. Like, they never said it was based on a true story, and neither does the movie really purport that. But the advertising to entice people in the theaters uh, got me in because it it made it look like this is going to be declassified information and this is all real and ooh secrets, you know. Uh, I, I I remember that I I drug I drug my entire family out to see this. I, I made my parents take me and my sister out to watch this movie. Oh yeah, yeah, I believe that. So yeah, it's a it's it's a it's a weird animal because it doesn't in no way does it claim to be historical, but then mm-hmm. it just has all these characters that are such obvious stand-ins for real people that kind of have similar relationships and and they even use some of the names like uh let's see, the Alan Dulles character is named Philip Allen. Right. So the Allen in there. 
Yeah, yeah. And um, stuff like that. But then you have some characters that, even though you can kind of tell because of the way they're arranged with each other and the position and the relationships they have against each other, you can kind of tell who they are. But then when you look at them, and here I'm talking about the Kim Philby character, I think in particular, like that they're actually like more, there's more things that are not Kim Philby about the Kim Philby character than there are that are like Kim Philby. Oh, absolutely. Big, huge, major ones uh, to point out just going in there is that uh, we don't have, we don't have any evidence. Like it's, it's not even really claimed that like Alan Dulles uh, was profiteering off mm-hmm. of like South American uh, hanky panky. Right. Well, they, uh, that, that CIA article in fact said there has never been a uh, director accused of anything remotely close to that. No, no, no director has ever been accused of uh, what, what would you call that? Is, is Profiteering. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The n- n- not a single director has ever been accused of anything remotely close to that. Is what they were saying. So it's kind of it's kind of fudged in there. And we've got a prominent Soviet defector that Matt is a historical guy that turns out to be a spy in the movie, but he wasn't in real life, or at least nobody says he was. Mm-hmm. Stuff like that. Um, but I think, oh yeah, those are the big ones. And then the other one, which I think we're going to cover as soon as we get into the briefing room is that, uh, this, this movie really does like, uh, buy into the, the, Ooh, what would you say? Would you call it a conspiracy theory that, uh, the CIA was like kind of birthed out of skull and bones? Yeah. Uh, I don't think that's accurate. I, I think a lot of skull and bones guys when I think a lot of there's been people from Skull and Bones that have been in the CIA, but it didn't come out of Skull and Bones. It mainly came out of OSS. Uh, uh, but one of the big accuracies was how much England helped our intelligence and and setting up essential intelligence. Voice pattern recognized. Retinal scan complete. Validating security clearance. Clearance granted. You may now enter the briefing room. Matt Damon's recruitment starts really back in his recruitment to the Skull and Bones. Uh, This is, I guess, his first taste of secrecy and being able to keep secrets. And this is where those in the know are recruiting... For the CIA. <clears throat> Interesting enough, uh, the glasses, the whole film kind of is way out of a timeline. It's not in chronological order. It jumps in time. And his different styles of glasses were a huge help in determining what time period are we in. Are we in college? Are we in early CIA? Are we in latter CIA? You know, I think there were three styles of glasses that he wore. Uh, and in this one, it's the the very circular 50s, you know, I, I don't think there were many choices back then. It was just, here's some glasses. <laughs> thin, thin gold rims. Yeah. And, uh, later in life, he, he trades for uh, Ray-Bans. Yeah, when he's, uh, when he's making that sweet uh, uh, m- manager exec type of pay, I guess. And he can get oh, those right. sweet yeah, Ray-Bans. Yeah. yeah. Uh, but um, so I, I I mean I think the film is inaccurate in saying that the CIA was born out of Skull and Bones, but uh, Angleton actually was a bonesman. Um, that part is true. Yeah, uh, but William Hurt's character Philip Allen, which is supposed to be Alan Dulles, was supposed to be the president of of the Bones, the Skull and Bones, um, and that. Uh, Dulles like got into the CAA through that, but Alan Dulles never went to Yale, so it's uh, it's not possible for him to have been a bonesman, right? And they make a big deal too of the the Richard Hayes character, uh, being a, a fellow bonesman, uh, right. with Matt Damon, and that supposing to to be this like permanent, unshakable bond between them, you know, right. that that transcends all other loyalties, right? Right, and they kind of. They're like oversight for each other, I guess. Because Richard Helm, well, the 
the character that was meant to be Richard Helms is like the the secret keeper, you know, and he's always watching people, you know. He's kind of like the shadow that watches everything, and he, you know, grows into that same role in the CIA. Uh, but I, th- I think him and Matt Damon's character are meant to kind of be some amount of, like, uh, co-oversight maybe. You know, there's like a little quip at the end where, like, Richard's like, hey, maybe you even got a secret about me in that drawer of yours, you know. <laughs> so it's uh he he's supposed richard is the guy that kind of is always watching the watchers i guess is the way you would describe it yeah 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 but um I, i'm not even sure that richard helms was a bonesman i think the only c i director was w h w bush you know daddy bush yeah was true. a bonesman and yeah that's, and that's when that's when i remember this like this theory you know, first being floated around and I just pretty much bought it. You know, I, I yeah. didn't, I didn't look into it. That was like kind of pre-internet for me. Yeah. Um, but uh, yeah, it just kind of floated around. And even when I saw this movie, like I thought that all of this skull and bones connection was, was legit. And it was only like uh, doing the, the digging in for this podcast that I found out like, no, nope, not, not a lot of there, there. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah. And funny enough, Bush never was in intelligence. He, 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 I don't think he had any intelligence experience. He just kind of was thrown in there after Colby had to, or forcibly resigned after the whole Watergate issue, which that's a whole rant for me some other time. But uh, yeah, but Bush being a postman never was in intelligence. He just became the director. So the, the idea that there was this like deep connection, I'm, I'm not sure is accurate. At right, all. right, right. <laughs> um, but what's cool, one, one of the accuracies that we can get into, Angleton was a poet. And I think that's really cool. You know, I, that's, that's one of my favorite kind of uh, tie-in, or I guess uh, characteristics of the movie, is that Edward studied poetry. And, you know, before we discover Professor England um, is a, a MI6 agent, or whatever that was working undercover, you know, we have this really cool scene where he's teaching Edward poetry and he's, you know, Edward writes a poem and starts and, and, and uh, the professor goes on this little quick lecture about reading between the words, seeing what's behind them, the meaning between rhyme and reason, you know, like, uh-huh. yeah, yeah. And, and I think it really sets the tone for the film because this is what, you know, as you know, as Edwards going through the CIA, or he's going through Skull and Bones, he's learning poetry, the language of not speaking directly. You know, he's 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 being procured by the FBI. You know, so I really like this moment where the fact that he's a poet really helps. You know, he only says things that that he means to say, and he always is reading behind what people are saying and what they mean. So I I really dug that a lot. That's a good take. I like that. Yeah. And uh, yeah, and he's not, you know, he's not just a poet. He's like uh, kind of a, I don't want to, I don't want to go so far as to say prodigy, prodigy, prodigy. Right. But, uh, you know, he's the guy that the English professor is like uh, tapping to be like the editor of, of Yale's poetry magazine. Right. So he's like top of his class in poetry. Right, right, right. He's, he's definitely got the teacher's attention. Which does make it seem weird. Like I, I don't even understand what the professor's trying to accomplish when he, you know, I mean, clear. I mean, it looks like he's making a pass at Edward. Oh, which, the cane, the cane. Yeah, that was right, cute. Right. Yeah, right. I think I think he was, but I'm not sure. And uh, yeah, yeah, I'm. I'm, I'm not I'm, sure if he's recruiting him or if he's trying to make a pass at him. I think I think there's probably a little of column A and a little column B there. Yeah, 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 yeah. You know why? Yeah. Why not have your cake and eat it too? Right. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> right. <laughs> but but it is it is really weird that like you know one of his one of his plays to like keep you know Edward kind of wants to leave and one of the professor's plays is to like say oh but listen I I've been writing something you know like would you listen to it and and he just straight up rips off like he's just ripping off some other poet. Right. And it's not even a big poet, but like, here's your top student in poetry. What are you doing? You know, like, you're not going to get by this. 
what is he trying to impress him or something? It was confusing. Really, really confusing. Yeah, I'm going to go with minus five points for him not expecting Edward to catch that. And also, it was gonna, it's kind of an unforced error, you know? Right. It was, it was not necessary. You know what I mean? It just, yeah. I, he threw himself under the bus really for no reason. If you, Which, know, if you know poetry well enough to pass yourself off as, you know, one of the top poetry professors at Yale. Right. <laughs> right. You, can jot, you, you can probably jot down a couple original lines. The, the poet thing really, really shot himself in the foot because now his whole operation was blown. If English professor is behind the scenes working with, uh, with uh, General Donovan, then that's enough for him to say like, hey, you know, one of your, one of your Yale boys like, like rooted me out. Like you might want to, you might want to put that guy on a list of, yeah, yeah. That, you know. <laughs> Right, you might be interested in using, and and that's exactly what uh, Donovan gets around to doing. So when uh, when Edward does get tapped, uh, he gets sent over to serve in England during World War Two. Yep, and that's where he runs uh, into the English professor again and finds out that he was MI six the whole right. time. Right, right, and where where he be- he now becomes uh, Edward's tutor in earnest. He teaches him all of the important factors, not to trust anybody, you know, uh, what you do when you're approaching an asset, when you're threatening them. You know, there's a, there's a lot of different ways to flip an asset, but one of them is, is with threats. And so what we have with English uh, professors, we get like a nice montage where we have, uh, you know, a bunch of, of uh, scenes where people are, you know, acting out what English professor is saying, and one of them is you, you, you make them make a decision. You, you, you show them a dilemma for themselves, and you make them make a decision quickly. Don't give them time to think. You, you make it sound like you're going to be their savior. You're there to help them and stuff like that. And you just shove it in their face, like, look, here's the situation. You, you could be in a lot of trouble. Uh, I'm here to help you but I need your decision right away. And this is really important for later in the story. Because? Oh, you're right. Oh, yeah. Because later, uh, there's a great scene with Ulysses and Matt Damon, or Edward, or I guess we'll call him mother at that point, uh, uh, where Ulysses does exactly what uh, Edward had learned from the British professor early on, where he's faced with the decision, your son is in danger. Your son had made this mistake. We're going to kill him. I need your decision right away. You know, and so it's like he's already been through intelligence and he's already been given this lesson, like from this top notch spy, you know, and so he, he's able to deal with situations like that. And I thought I thought it was a nice playback. Yeah, of course. Yeah. Big time. Big time. Um, black propaganda, he mentions, which mm-hmm. uh I'm a little confused by this wiki uh, entry. You want to see if you can help me tease it apart, or do you know black black propaganda? Well, yeah, I think uh, the the well, like the black propaganda was setting out a story that Hitler had syphilis, right? I guess, but that just seems like regular propaganda. This is something where, if like a false flag type of propaganda, where you you would have a story come out like your enemy put out the story and it makes the them look really bad. Right. Okay. But so it's, but now it doesn't exactly click though with what we see Edward do with it. Like we, we, you know, we get this montage. He's receiving all this wisdom from English professor, but we don't actually see him putting it into practice. He does play right. the syphilis rumor, but right. The syphilis rumor goes out as, uh, you know, on the radio as uh, British professors, Brit- like English doctors, uh-huh. have determined that, like, Hitler's got syphilis or something. Um, black propaganda would be, like, doing it so that, like, someone else other than us right, is like saying. Right, Germans, if, if Germans had come out and reported the syphilis story. Right, or at least you you somehow claim that they did, or or make it look like they did. Right, you're, exactly. You're getting two things accomplished, you're discrediting the source. Right. You're, you're again, you're causing that that confusion. 
Right, like, exactly. Which is what the English professor is preaching, but it's does it's not exactly what Edward's practicing. Just want to give some right. slight minus five points there. Yeah, we don't actually. Edward in the entire film doesn't do anything he was taught. Really, he, he really, he, yeah, he really doesn't. I'm glad you keyed in on that too. Yeah, uh, but I mean, he is the head of counterintelligence, so I'm guessing him learning what was being taught to him is how he's able to spot spot because you know I, I think the british professor had said the people you're watching have an inquisitive mind and an obsessive attention to detail or something like that uh-huh, so right. so so i think the lessons help him spot spies but we never see him actually act them out especially when he is a spy in germany you know what i mean yeah 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 and yeah. but you know that comes down to really the heart of this movie which is like it's not it's it's not like a spy procedural it's the movie's much more concerned with the the way that this world affects the personal lives of the people involved and their yes. relationships yes that's yes. what the movie's really about right Which and might, I, might might have contributed to the mixed reviews on it right right i i, I well i also think the critics didn't like it cuz they didn't understand what was going on there's not really any hand-holding in this movie whatsoever. So uh, much is implied. So much is implied. Right. That, that you, yeah, you, and, and not stated directly, 100%. Right. Like, it's always like a look or a statement or like a handshake or like one shot, you know, of a, of a scene. And, and you just got to piece we, – we, we had to piece together a lot of the tradecraft or a lot of the, the, the spy – we, the the story of the people's lives was very very much in the front, but the the story of the spying we had to really piece together, which was fun for us. I, with, I, a few, I, with a few exceptions, there's some direct ones. Right, uh, right. The 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 part you were talking about about like um like how you need to like blindside someone with with uh, you know your dirt on them and not give them time to think. We we get to see. The Kim Philby character pulled that off, you know, while English professor is teaching Edward. I right. might have been happier just letting Edward have done that himself. Right, right, right. But uh, either way, that's my number two best tradecraft. It's one of the most, like, clear examples that we do get to see in the film of, like, this is how you do it. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, yeah I, I like that a lot. And it was, but it... You know, it was a typical montage shot of like you know master student time, where they're learning. You know, very uh, yeah, and, and I think I think it I think it was really well done. But yeah, we 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 had to figure everything else out. <laughs> so now let's do let's do the uh, the fall of the English professor. Oh, okay, um, so interesting. Uh, our Kim Philby character, which we don't know is Kim Philby at this point in the film. Uh, we just think he's some British spy or whatever. But, you know, um, uh, that character approaches Richard and Edward. Um, you know, Richard being uh, the, the fellow bonesman that is the, the keeper of the secrets, so to speak. And, and Edward, Matt Damon, uh, they meet at like, a, I don't know, like a lounge somewhere. And... <clears throat> Uh, our, our Kim Philby character delivers some bad news of our poor English professor uh, that, you know, he's been uh, not careful with his associations. And it becomes clear both at Yale and, uh, you know, while he's being teaching that the English professor, um, uh, I guess is homosexual is the way we'll call it. Um, and uh, the Kim Philby character implies that he's been not discreet with the partners he's had and that he's been letting information out. So they have to uh, clean house, so to speak. And this is where uh, Edward asks Richard, like, well, why are they asking us to do this? This is a British problem, not our, not our problem. And Richard's like, the British are a civilized people, you know, they don't eat their own, you know? So they, they want someone else to do their dirty work for them. And, and, and Richard's basically like, Look, you have an opportunity to take care of this yourself. We'll, we'll get someone else to do it, but because this is your professor and you have an emotional time, which I think is super, super samurai, you know, 
like very uh very heavy like you know like like mafia type you know like look this is your professor you care about this man we're giving you an opportunity to take care of it where somebody else will you know it was super like just thrown into his lap and he's like ah fuck you know and so uh there's this nice line that uh philby gives out you know if he doesn't listen to reason you might want to tie your shoes which is important because uh edward takes the professor out for a walk and he's trying to be like hey uh, you ever think about teaching again? You know, you were a great teacher. You go, why don't you start? You know, I've taught every day. Well, he's like, oh, you know, and he, and then he's like, oh, I see. They they don't like, you know, they they they're they're suspicious of me. Well, I am who I am. You know, blah, blah. he's like, yeah, but you know, you've you've done your duty. It's time for you to retire. And he goes, listen, Edward. You know, I've been part of this. This is a dirty business, and I've been part of it too long. And he's like, you know, your little schoolboy out there might want my response. You know, I understand if you want to tie my want to tie your shoe, and and it was super sweet. He gets down on one knee and he ties Edward's shoes, and and I think I think this is really where the title of the film is really important. You know, because at the opening of the film, it, it has the Bible verse of the Good Shepherd. You know, I, the Good Shepherd lays his life down for his friends. You know, and and we have these two Good Shepherds, uh, mainly English professor and and a Robert De Niro character, uh, who's Bill Donovan, and and so here we have English professor tying edward's shoe like and it's like the the jesus with his disciples where he's washing their feet you know it's very humble like he comes down and you know like i think the line is just like no no disciple is greater than their mat no servant is greater than their master so if you see me serving you you need to serve each other you know and so we have english professor getting down on one knee you know tying edward's shoes in a very humbling position and he's, you know, he's talking about, you know, like we're bootmakers, we're all bootmakers to kings. You might want to find some new shoes. There's a wonderful place down the street. You know, it's such a, it's such, a, it's such a, I, I think, beautiful moment. You know, because here, 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 English professor is passing the torch to Edward. You know, from one good shepherd to another. You know, type of thing. And I, I thought it was really sweet. But Todd and I have a little bit of a disagreement. Yeah, I want to quibble with some of the some of the details here. Like some, yeah. some some stuff just doesn't click together. Not to take anything away from like the the simple beauty of the the moment that you're describing. Right. It's kind of like I like where I like where they got to. I didn't really like how they got there. Right, you know right, what I mean? Right. Yes. So like uh, now, just a small correction. You said. I uh, believe this is a correction. You said that he was, they thought he was passing information. I don't think that's the case. I think they were just worried that he could or might, you know, uh... say something he's not supposed to. And also being uh, indiscreet with his choice of partners, mm-hmm. you know, like, I think that could also be like uptight Cambridge code for gay. Like that it's not necessarily that they're concerned about the specific uh, young men that the professor might be dallying with, but that they're just concerned that he's dallying with homosexuals at all, which was like, uh, like, I think up until very recently, and maybe even still true, like, that's a kind of a big thing that, like, I think it's considered by the culture of the, the universe of the movie you know, historically, that just being gay was considered to be a big liability in intelligence services because that's, like, something that the enemy could, like, use against you. Like, right. threaten, threaten to out you. But they didn't need a code word because uh, Philby, or Kim Philby character definitely says, and you know his sexual tastes. Uh, he, right. So, yeah, so I know, the, I know. The, it, being in discreet partners, I don't think is a code word. I th- I think he's he f- I th- I think it is the partners that's the well I, I mean we had this discussion and you know I I think English professor set this whole thing up himself I I think I think he was throwing himself under the bus that he had done his time he didn't really want to you know be around this world anymore and I think he's the one that planted the idea and I think he knew because because English professor is teaching counterintelligence to Edward. As well I dislike as it... I dislike that for this reason. He's just spent all this time like preaching this stuff to Edward 
And then he just suddenly flips around and says, like, this is bullshit. <laughs> I'm gonna I'm gonna suicide by CIA. <laughs> right. <laughs> and and you should and you should get out and and not do any of the things that I just spent all these, you know, months and months teaching you. Yeah, just, but that's not but I mean he wasn't saying it's bullshit. That's what he says. He was like, it's a dirty business. I've been part of it for far too long, is what he says. I think his I think he's you know paid his dues he's done his service and he he can't retire you know what i mean like what's retirement for him what is he gonna go like play like you know polo or something or what no like he like like he's seen too much shit in his day he doesn't want to live with those nightmares anymore type of thing and and this is really i think edward's first introduction to how bad the business is he just had to make the call to have his teacher murdered you know what I mean? He had to facilitate the murder of his teacher, who was a wonderful man to him, was a great teacher, not only a great teacher, but was like someone to look up, a good shepherd. You know what I mean? So I, I think I think the professor had seen days like that where he had to kill people he was close to. You know, he made that line. He was just like, I hope one day that you can meet someone that you trust. I, I, I'm sad to say I haven't. You know, it's he's 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 been through that world where he can't trust anybody, where people have stabbed him in the back and he's had to make calls like that. So I, I think I think he just he just wanted out and the torch had already be, had been passed. He, he handed down his, you know, and there's also since since we're obviously doing a lot of biblical references with the title and this type of moment. This is his, you know, his Christ moment where he's he's kind of like laid his life down. You know, and 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 it's now up to Edwards to carry the port to, tor uh, to torch, but I think that line he's just like get out while you can while you still have a soul is really important because this is this is this is the time that Edward could walk. It's like look, once you're in, you're in for life. That's it. Like get out while you can. Once once you're in, you're in, and 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 it's it's you you, you got to be prepared to see dirty things like this. I th I think that I think the whole thing was planned, but. I do agree with you that a lot of things could have been executed better or said better, maybe. Well, I think we'll we'll just move on with my caveat that I just didn't swallow it quite as easily as as you did. Right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, think, I I think your romanticism is is showing uh, pretty strongly in in your uh, uh, which is great. Which is great. Yeah. That's you know a lot of times that's what you want to be to appreciate a movie like this is you want to right. uh, be like, as, uh, as Philby said, you know, you got to be a hopeless bit. romantic. Yeah. Right. Yeah. 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 To, to be in this business. Yeah. But, uh, <laughs> professor dies. The war ends. Yeah. Uh, everyone's scrambling to, uh, to, to snap up all the scientists, all the V2 rocket scientists. And, yeah. uh, we've, we've always heard that this was true. Right. Right. We we abs we absolutely believe that this was uh, a primary thing. I, I like I like the way it's handled just in that one scene in the office where uh, you know Edward is uh, you know he's being brought people that are you know Germans that are are uh, claiming that they can help them you know find this scientist or that scientist in in exchange for getting me the fuck out of here before Nuremberg happens. Right. Right. Yeah. <laughs> right. <laughs> when he gets back from World War II is when we start introducing his family life as, as a major element in the film. Right. And, you know, there'd been some setup on this. Uh, we know that, you know, he was in love with Laura, the deaf girl, but then, uh, you know, he had an indiscretion with uh, Angelina Jolie and she gets pregnant and she gives birth to their son while he's off, uh, doing his intelligence work in the war. Right. So he's coming home to uh, a marriage that really, like... Never existed. Yeah, 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 pretty much. And, you know, his son is is kind of grown up. Uh, it looks like he might have been, like, four. Four, five, yeah. Something like that. When, I, think, when... I, feel, I feel like she might have said six years. Oh, uh, yeah. Oh, that's right, because she says six years is a long time. I think that's, uh, that's what's clicking she, she basically confesses that she had slept with someone. Right, and he reciprocates. He says and he's, it was a mistake, but it's it still like it, it just gets to hang there between them. You know, right. they, they don't they don't uh, they don't share a bed uh, at this point. She's got him set up in the guest room, and 
and he gets to uh, the well. I mean, the, obviously, the first thing he does, the, you know, the huge thing for him is you know actually getting to meet his son face to face. Right. Exactly. And, and that. Yeah. Of course, his his son is like uh, you know this. We're we're gonna guess four years old, four or five. Right. Uh, has no idea who this guy is. Somebody told him this is your dad. He probably doesn't even really understand what that means. Yeah. Right. <laughs> um, but, uh, you know, in a clunky 1950s dad style, I guess, uh, Edward presents his son with, uh, something that he made for him. And we had established at least in the film, at least, cause we've seen, you know, scenes of the future. Uh, we've established that Edward likes to build, uh, ships in bottles. Yeah. Right. That's like his. Yeah, he likes putting the time in and putting it together. Yeah, and he's made this little tiny model ship that he's encased in a glass medallion, which is cool because you can't give a four-year-old a ship in a bottle. Right, <laughs> right. <laughs> break that ship, but this thing's like a solid hunk of glass, you know. Right. And um, it's got the. Um, uh, it's got the British flag for some reason. Why? Why British flag? Give give your kid one with an American. Flag. Yeah, I know, right? Well, I um, mean, the British Navy, maybe. The, I mean, that the the type of ship, I guess. But he also had a pirate flag on it too. There's a British flag and a pirate flag. Right, which is conceivably a callback to uh, Skull and Bones. Oh, that's right. Yeah. And. Um, I'm not sure about this, but I will go ahead and mention it, that there's 15 sails on the ship, which currently, like currently, uh, Skull and Bones recruits 15 members each year. Oh, really? Oh. Oh, that's cute. Right. But I don't think that was true at the time, but it still could have been something that someone... Like, like, found out and slipped in there. Or it could just be a fucking coincidence, you know, 15. Right. Right. Well, I mean, he makes a big deal about counting the sales to his kids, so there might be there. There's probably and and little Eddie becomes a bonesman later, so I there's got to be a there's there's a reason why that number I like, is there. I like I like to think so. Mm-hmm. I like to think so, but can't exactly be confirmed. And if it was confirmed, then it's a slight error on the scriptwriter's um, part. Right. But. Uh, the important thing is that this little ship in a bottle kind of uh, token is like this talisman that now connects the father and son. Right. Right. And and one of their um, big, like when, after Eddie's grown up some more, one of their big, like nice scenes that they have together is, is them, uh, is his, him teaching his son the craft of, of, you know, he helps his son build his own first ship in a bottle. Yeah. And it's and it's at that point that, uh, you know, Eddie turns to his father and, like, uh, you know, says that he's going to have this singing recital and and uh, that he'd very much like his father to come. And so this seems like a turning point that uh, in that aspect of when he's really, like, beginning to actively seek his father's approval. Yes. All connected with the ship in a bottle. So that's yes. you, you, so that's an important. It's a talisman. Yes. Too. Definitely should underscore that. <laughs> right, right, right. Because yeah. it's going to come back. <laughs> yeah. But yeah. enough about Little Eddie. I, I, I think we need to talk about Angelina Jolie. I, I was insanely blown away by her performance. I would temper that a little insanely yeah. blown away no but yeah. i liked it i loved it yeah i i i, I, I think it was just unexpected yeah especially because i it's a it's a pretty unrewarding role there's yeah. not a lot on the page for her to do right but she does it really well in my yeah, I, yeah i think there's a big difference you know I mean, this is an all-star cast, so you you already have like a high bar of acting here, and then Angelina shows up, and in every scene she just like steals the sh- the shot. You know what I mean? It's just she just owns her role. She plays it so you know. And she's, it's a, she's it's very a, magnetic. She she manages yeah. she manages to be highly sympathetic and unsympathetic at the same time. 
you know, marriage is really complicated by itself. Mm -hmm. This marriage that they have is extremely complicated. And I think she's the main reason that we really buy the tension between them. I mean, the putting them up in the guest room makes sense. They hadn't seen each other. So they're not going to like just snap into like a regular marriage, you know, when they didn't even have a marriage to begin with. Because he was shipped off like right after they were married, you know, so. But yes, I, I feel I really feel for her character because she's just always waltzing around in uncertainty with no information. She doesn't know anything. She doesn't even really have a husband. Her only life is her baby boy, you know, and it, it's, it's just kind of sad. And I think I think she really owns this this character very, very right. Well. De Niro in an interview said in one interview that I watched, he said that he actually he had felt kind of bad about asking her to do it because he thought that the role was like beneath her. Right. But, but that he was just like, you know, like the same thing that we're expressing, like that he himself was really, really just floored and super impressed with what she brought to it. Yeah. And she, she definitely owned it. And, and, and she, yeah. I, it, yeah. She definitely, she definitely brought brought the brought the acting, <laughs> right? And I think she stole and, a lot of the scenes just because and, of how powerful she was. And all this is going to build up to a very important scene, and I think it's the critical one that she has to be there for. Um, but then uh, that this that final ball kind of gets rolling with. Um, so now this is now many years later, right? We we've gotten home. We're going through the marriage. Years are passing. I think the entire film is supposed to cover, I think, like 22 years of time. Right. Something like that. Uh, probably from recruitment to Yale to the, to the beginning of the CIA. And that would clock because that would be like if 61, 61, I think, is Bay of Pigs. So what are we talking? Like 39 would be uh, induction into Skull and Bones, that all seems to clock, right, with the World right. War II track and everything. Right, something like that. Um, but many, many years later, uh, he gets a random chance to reunite with Laura, his, his, you know, um, I don't know, in the language of the movie anyways, we're meant to believe is his, like, his actual true love. Uh, this is actually my number one worst tradecraft. He was there with a supposed spy that wanted asylum and is like feeding him information at that point he had trusted him but i wouldn't be going off and hitting on you know uh my old uh romantic flame right after you know the the same it's presumably the same night that he w- runs into where he's hanging out with the one of his assets i think that's really unprofessional and is uh, uh, it was a little bit of tipping his hand, and it got him into trouble. But yeah. <laughs> it's 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 really important for the story because it's the fight that they have over this that is what I can what I call like the pivotal scene with Angelina, and in which the, it's for the first time they actually yell their true feelings at each other, right, right. and that it really is just about Eddie. Like, yeah. and, and they are like, they're only in this because of him. And she, you know, she's uh, going to leave him like right. over this. Right. And, uh, but uh, before she does, she really like verbalizes and gets him, you know, like winds him up enough, this super stoic reserved, you know, ultra calm, ultra, like uh, doesn't show any emotions except for the fact, again, I feel like Matt Damon is throwing off these micro signals yeah. <laughs> of, of, the, of what's going on under the surface through the right. film, like so, right. so well. I think, I just think that's like, of the things Matt Damon does, that's something he, that's, that's my favorite thing that he does. Yeah. And it's important to the story because this really also clarifies the, the Eddie Edward relationship. And she is the one that's pointing out to him all the ways that, you know, like, you haven't been there for him, but he's still, like, he'll do anything to get your approval, and you have to protect him. And I think we already know at this point, like, he wants to get into the CIA. She's obviously not happy with that. 
right. uh, you know, he says, you know, don't tell me how to protect my son and, yeah. and stuff like that. Yeah. And, and all that is like, it's just really critical for, for all this to happen for the ultimate like emotional payoff of the Eddie Edwards story. She had to be there and she had to do all this, like, like I said, like kind of unrewarding, uh, just harried, annoyed, annoying housewife kind of bullshit in order right. to get us here. Right, so right, right. Uh, I literally say, Miss Chili, we thank you for this for your service in this film. <laughs> yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. Oh, and another thing, this scene was added later. Oh, really? It wasn't in the original script, which feels funny to me because I think it's so pivotal. I think the whole movie falls apart without this scene. And again, also it's important that she's there because she has to say a whole bunch of things that Matt Damon can't say. Right. Because Matt Damon doesn't fucking talk to us. He doesn't yeah. tell us what he's thinking. Doesn't say a single word. Right, right, right. <laughs> so, um, yep, she sees that Eddie's turning toward his father. She can't stop it. I'm out of here. Don't fuck up our son. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> And that will conclude our tradecraft analysis of the early days of the Edward Wilson character, his introduction and training as an intelligence officer up into the end of World War II. Next week, we're going to be looking at some of the other major players on the board, including a close look at the Dulles and uh, Wild Bill Donovan stand-in characters. And uh, also, what the hell, let's do a deep dive into the Soviet counterplay against the up-and-coming CIA as the Cold War begins. As always, the best way to make sure you don't miss out on that is to hit the subscribe button on iTunes, Google, or your favorite podcast app. Also, you can find updates on our Facebook page or website, spieslikeus.net. And please, if you can help us out, give us some feedback by rating us and leaving comments. We're always trying to improve the show and your thoughts would be a big help. The preceding transmission sampled the songs Ice Cold by Audio Nautics, Enter the Party by Kevin McLeod, and sound effects from freesound.org. Attributions and links are found at spieslikeus.net. Editing by Todd Hostetler.